0: Hey gang, David here, gang, what are we calling you guys? Screeners, timers, first timers, none of that is anything.
1: David, our fans are obviously called screen testers.
0: But you know what is something? iTunes, still the biggest place people get podcasts. So if you haven't, we'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe to us on there to get all the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And then while you're there, if you could also like the podcast, maybe even write us up a review, that'd really help us out. Thanks screen
1: testers. And with that... Matrimony is baloney. she'll be wanting alimony in a year or so. Still they go and shuffle, shuffle off to Buffalo. When she knows as much as we know, she'll be on her way to Reno while he still has dough. He'll give him the shuffle when back from Buffalo. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. Once we've seen all the movies in a particular year, we will tell you if the Academy's choice has stood the Screen Test of Time. I'm Susan Araslin.
0: I'm David Daw.
1: And this week. The big Hollywood musical has finally arrived, and it is ironically about Broadway, and not Hollywood at all.
0: Which is our weekly take a drink, because this movie is weird.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Don't play a drinking game where every time David says a movie is weird, you take a drink if you're listening to all of these at one time, because you will die.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It is so weird that this movie spins... Three fourths of its running time going into the minutiae of like, this is a Broadway show. We're like putting on a real show on a stage. This is a staged performance. And then the last 20 minutes are a Busby Berkeley musical that would make absolutely no sense on a stage. Just, it would be utter fucking nonsense.
1: You also just would not be able to stage it. I mean, oh yeah. One thing that I will say to its credit is that. I'm excited to see a musical number that, or I guess it's really like three musical numbers, that are staged for a camera or several cameras and not just, okay, well, we set a camera in the 10th row of a theater and shot whatever was on stage. But that is literally the last 20 minutes of this sh- of this movie. <laughs> yeah.
0: And like the last 20 minutes of this movie are fucking great.
1: Oh, they're, they're amazing. And- Are not as out of place in this movie as the, like, 30 minutes of musical numbers that were in the end of She Done Him Wrong. Oh, yeah. Like, we'd been preparing for this musical the whole movie, so it was like, okay, fine. Now we're gonna get it.
0: But it is, like, just suddenly this is, I mean, this movie is directed by this other guy whose name is Lloyd Bacon, and then suddenly, for the last twenty minutes, it's like, oh, Busby Berkeley is directing the movie now. <laughs> like we're we're at the part Busby Berkeley directed. Like it feels completely different in terms of the cinematography and the staging and like everything.
1: And even when they go back to the backstage part of it, where they're you know showing the director and the and the audience is leaving the theater, it's still directed by Busby Berkeley. <laughs> Yeah. It's like you have crane shots of the audience while you hear the director and the stage manager talking.
0: But we should also, I mean, I guess we should talk about the other hour and 10 minutes of this movie. Because that's... It,
1: uh, it's I guess.
0: <laughs> it's why we're not just giving this a 10 and going like, best movie ever made, goodbye.
1: <laughs> right. That is, that is 100% true. Because if it were just the last 20 minutes of this... It would be a ten. Yeah. No question. As it stands, well we'll get to the score, but it's not gonna be a ten. I'll I'll spoil that for you.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to go through the plot of this, it's very like they're we're putting on a new musical, the director has the like great nineteen thirties disease of if you try too hard you're gonna fall over dead <laughs> Uh, that a lot of protagonists seem to have in these movies, and I don't know what it's supposed to be, but he, he's taking on one last directing job because one of the things that is very interesting about this movie Is that it is like the first movie we've seen that really acknowledges the Great Depression and how much the Great Depression sucks? Yeah,
1: I had that thought a lot during it because they definitely throw it out a few times. It's like, I know there's a depression on.
0: The director is directing this because he lost all of his money in the stock market crash, for instance. Right.
1: And then there's like a, there's a boarding house matron, I guess is what you would call them, who at a certain point gets mad because a character brings a man back to her apartment. To her room, and the boarding house matron says, you know, I know there's depression on, but I'm not having people throw their morals away in my house.
0: <laughs> Which we gotta circle back to that scene because every single moment of that scene is nuts. Oh, we will. But there's a, you know, new naive newcomer, there's a female lead of the show there in a love triangle with this out-of-work vaudeville actor. So, so apparently it's just there was a real depression on for dudes. And you kind of take what you can get. Ginger (laughs) Rogers and Una Merkel play these kind of chorus girl supporting characters who are both great that sort of help the newcomer out. The leading lady breaks her ankle like the night before the show goes on and the naive newcomer has to take over and be the lead for the show's opening. And then you're in a Busby Berkeley musical. Um, And that's that's pretty much the whole plot. There's some extra incidents in there we can talk about. But in terms of like the story, that's the story.
1: That is absolutely the story. So we have the return of Warner Baxter to the Screen Test of Time in a role he is actually appropriate to play, as opposed to the Portuguese bandit in in old Arizona.
0: Oh, I had not realized that was the same guy.
1: Yeah, he plays he plays Julian, the director, and he was great in yeah. this. He was really fantastic.
0: (laughs) Yeah. He does a great job doing the, like, the director that, like, works you too hard, but also... Oh, God, there is a great... There is the er, like, montage of getting somebody ready for the show where the director just locks Peggy, the new girl, in a room with him and they rehearse the whole show for five straight hours And it's just the best montage of like, no, sell him you love him. Have you ever loved a man? No, we got to start again. One, two, three, four. Like, it's just like, (laughs) it's all of like, it's, it's entire movies about that in 45 seconds. And it's great.
1: Yep. So one of the things that you left out though that I think is like integral to the plot is that there is a guy named Abner, who is the financial backer of the show, who is essentially paying for the show so that Dorothy the star can be in it and they're sleeping together which is like is never outright said but you know that it's happening even though she is in love with Pat the out of work vaudevillian yeah. and they apparently like came up together through vaudeville but she's become famous and his career hasn't really gone anywhere and you said that they're in a love triangle that Dorothy Pat and Peggy are in a love triangle which the movie wants you to believe for most of it and then is just kind of like no all along she was into this guy Billy who helped her out on audition day and Pat has always been forever dedicated to Dorothy. And I'm like, then why did you set up this hour-long love triangle?
0: You know, the weird-ass thing that I'm just learning from Wikipedia is that in the novel, Billy, the guy that Peggy ends up with at the end, is actually in a same-sex relationship with the director.
1: Which I would love to to read this book, because then I don't know how that works out as far as Peggy is concerned. Like, does she just not, she just, like, doesn't end up with anybody? Because that would be fine.
0: I assumed (laughs) she got Pat, because, like, there is a real, like, tragic dimension to what happens to Dorothy. The weird thing, I know you're gonna be shocked this is weird, but Ding Dorothy comes in, (laughs) After Peggy takes over her role and gives this like, it's your time now. It's too late for me. My hour in the sun was, she's like 28. (laughs) Right. And like, and
1: she's like, go out there and be so good that I want to tear your hair out, which is what she actually says.
0: Yeah. And it's like the movie makes her give the new girl her blessing, which is bad. It's kind of the thing I like the least about that turn. I mean, it's, it's also that like everybody at the end of this is like, Peggy's so great. They don't deserve to discover her. She's the best thing that ever happened. She's all right. She's like the third best female in the part of the musical you get to see.
1: Yeah, I, I want to get to that actually specifically, because that was my biggest problem with this whole movie is that Ruby Keeler, who plays Peggy Sawyer, is horribly miscast. We have Una Merkel and Ginger Rogers, who are both absolutely captivating, who are great dancers, who are super magnetic. And we have this thing at the end where Una Merkel's character, Lorraine, is like, was it Lorraine or was it was it Annie? No, it was Annie.
0: It was Annie. Yeah, it was Ginger Rogers. Which is so. Ginger
1: Rogers, where she's like, I've been in this business for so long, Julian, and you know if I'm giving up the role and saying that you should give it to Peggy, that she's great. Here's what we've seen of Peggy. She can barely sing. Every time she's in a dance rehearsal, she is flailing like she is drowning and trying to save herself. At one point, she faints during rehearsal. There is no indication in any part of this movie that she's like just a, a star waiting to be discovered.
0: Yeah, there's no like scene where like she tries the big number from the show and is super magnetic at it. And they're like, well, too bad, you're not the lead. Like that, n- that never happens. It's just suddenly Ginger Rogers is like, Peggy's the greatest thing that ever happened. You have to make her the lead. And then everybody's like, okay.
1: Well, if, I mean, yeah, if any time Annie says so, then. <sighs>
0: Can we talk about Ginger Rogers' character? Because I love her. She's the best.
1: I want a whole movie of Ginger Rogers' character in this. I
0: don't remember the last time I laughed as hard at something as the just every bit of business with her monocle makes me laugh so hard. (laughs) She shows up with a monocle and the like fake non-specific European accent to try and differentiate herself from all the other chorus girls.
1: Oh, I thought it was very specifically English because she said that she'd spent some time in like some provincial part of England when Lorraine asks her where she's been. And she's holding at the audition, she brings a Pomeranian puppy with her. Right.
0: But the bit is she just immediately abandons that accent and is immediately found out, but then keeps going with it anyway. Like, just is that committed to her fake British accent? And at one point, she has this monocle, and it gets knocked off her into the row in front of her of the chorus girls, and the girl in front of her, like, stomps on it with her heel and breaks the monocle, and Ginger Rogers just gives the best, like, eh, what are you gonna do, take, and then takes another monocle out of her breast pocket and puts (laughs) it on, and I laughed so hard.
1: (laughs) Oh, it was so good. It was so good. Oh, and she's wearing like a tweed vest and a little cap. She has this whole very like feminized newsboy thing going on. <laughs> it's it's very cute. But yeah, she and Una Merkel were both so wonderful that I I could not grasp how Peggy Sawyer was supposed to be somehow better than Lorraine and
0: Annie. I can't figure out like anything about Peggy because there's this thing where like she's super duper naive, but then like always plays shit in this way where I'm like, is she, does she know she's doing this? Like she consistently is like, oh, I can't do that tonight. I have 47 dates. (laughs) And at some point you're like, is she naive or is she just playing literally everyone? And then at the end, I guess you're supposed to go like, oh, no, she actually was that naive. She just naively flirts with literally every dude, basically in the entire movie.
1: Which, like, fine, except that she's so boring.
0: Yeah. She also just, like, goes along with anything to go go back to the boarding house scene, which is super bizarre. The love interest guy, Pat Denning, who is a garbage person, like all male leads in 1930s movies. (laughs) Gets roughed up by the mob because the lead is supposed to be sleeping with the wealthy industrialist dude who's bankrolling the show, uh, and she's actually- Are
1: they the mob, or are they just, like, members of the Local 1 IATSE stagehand?
0: I mean, like, gray area, but, like, they're- (laughs) They're, like, they're- They're definitely on the mob end of the Teamsters, if they're Teamsters. Like, they're- they're, They are, I I think, supposed to be like actual mob people because everyone, when the director calls them up, is like, I don't want to be involved with them. They rough up this dude and Peggy sees it. And so she brings him into her boarding house to like clean him up and treat his injuries. And then the like matron of the boarding house finds them and immediately just kicks her entirely out of the boarding house. And Peggy doesn't bother to explain anything. She just immediately is like, if you're kicking him out, you're kicking me out. Like voluntarily gives up her place to live and then just shrugs and like gets a suitcase out from underneath her bed and just packs up everything she owns and leaves.
1: Yeah, that- was a really strange thing to me for for a number of reasons, because the only relationship that she and Pat have is uh, it's the same day where she's fainted at rehearsal. He finds her in the hallway and like they have this whole exchange that's really cutesy about how he's going to be her doctor or whatever. And then rehearsal is over And Dorothy is leaving with Abner, the like rich, old, gross guy who slobbers all over all of the dancers and who's funding the show. And then he gets beat up and then she's like, well, now it's my time to be your doctor. And I'm like, for real? Yeah. (laughs) You would risk where you live for this guy you've had a five minute conversation with who was like, oh, man, sorry you fainted. Maybe you shouldn't stand up. Literally anybody would have done that.
0: Yeah, there's this thing of like, it, it then just never comes up again. Like, it, it's an excuse for her to spend the night at his place. But then just like, nobody's ever like, hey, do you have a place to live? Like, are you are you sleeping on the street? What is happening with you?
1: <laughs> Which is his place, by the way. So she's like, well, where are we going to go? And he says, well, I guess we could go to a hotel. And that was the point where I was like, is this like a setup for them to sleep together? Because he's suggesting they go to a hotel. And she says, well, it better be cheap because I only have a dollar and a half in my pocket. Which every time there's anything like that from an old movie, I just like crack up with uh, sadness. Because I'm like, ha, ha ha ha, a hotel in New York for a dollar and a half. Or for anything under $100. And he says, well, we could go back to my place. And she asks how it is or whatever. And he says, well, you know, it's not grand. And then they go to his apartment and it's like three times the size of my one bedroom apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Yup. The bedroom is massive. There's like a queen bed in it that doesn't touch any walls except for the headboard or even come close to them. And then she does have a moment where he's going to sleep on the couch, I guess. And so she locks the door. And that was the point where I went, okay, great. So she's not literally trying to steal Dorothy's man. But I, I also didn't really feel like there was that much chemistry between her and Billy. And that really was all on her because he did all of the lifting in that flirtation. He was charming beyond words.
0: Yeah. But I still was like, when, because the setup to her confessing that she loves him is the director going like, haven't you ever loved anybody when he's like mercilessly rehearsing her right before the show? And she goes like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's Pat. Like, I did not realize like, oh, it's supposed to be Billy.
1: Oh, I felt exactly the same way. I was like, oh, so she actually does have this unrequited love for Pat. Yeah. All right. That is crappy, but whatever. But nope, it's apparently Billy, who she has had very few scenes with. Though I love the way that they meet, which is she goes to the audition at the beginning and she's like, I got, I have to see the head guy. And people are pointing her to a door and she is about to go in when a guy comes out and is like, hey, and they all pointed her to the men's bathroom. <laughs> And then she goes to another door and opens it, and for whatever reason, Billy is like in his underwear and an undershirt, getting dressed, and and is like just keeps getting dressed. It says, you know, stick with me, kid. I'll I'll take you where you need to go. But he's not creepy about it at all.
0: Yeah, no, he's very like sweet and charming, and like seems to genuinely be like trying to do the best he can for her. Unlike almost everybody else in this movie, <laughs> at least in that scene is kind of being a jerk to her
1: but my question is why i don't understand the appeal of peggy i mean i
0: i get being attracted to her like i do get that but i don't
1: she's got really big eyes and she always she always looks like a bush baby on the verge of tears yeah
0: I don't, I don't get literally every man falling all over themselves for her and everyone going like, oh yes, she has a star quality no one else in this room full of beautiful women has. But like, I do get like, Oh, yeah, like I I could see like having her come into the room and being like, yeah, I'm going to hit on this one for sure. So Billy falling for her doesn't strike me as that weird. It's that everyone falls for her that I'm like, really? Because like literally Ginger Rogers is right there.
1: <laughs> and if Ginger Rogers were not, <laughs> Una Merkel is right there.
0: Yeah. And yeah, it is weird because it's a real show, don't tell, like, give me a reason why everybody thinks Peggy is so great, which the movie, like, never does. No. To the degree that it is a really weird plot turn when you realize she's supposed to be the lead. When Ginger Rogers is like, she's the one that's got to take over the show, you're like, I mean, on the one hand, like, of course, but, like, on another hand, like, what?
1: (laughs) And that is the thing that's frustrating about it, is that it, it is, of course, because who has been, who's been the star of the movie? It's been Peggy. So, okay, we know that she's going to have to have some kind of star turn. Which is why I say that she's miscast and not that the show is poorly written. Because I've seen stage productions of 42nd Street where it makes total sense that Peggy comes out on top. But Sutton Foster, this actress, is not. (laughs) Like Sutton Foster can totally do like naive, sweet, like, I just showed up on Broadway And then like blow your socks off because she does have star quality and she can couple that latent eroticism with a believable naivete instead of just like, oh, well, this girl is naive because she's boring.
0: I'm realizing now that there kind of is a thing that's supposed to be like, oh, this one's got star power. And it's that thing where she tap dances a little bit. Oh, yeah, she can tap dance. She's fine. It's fine. But
1: she's not even the best tap dancer. Nope. I mean, you you can't put Ginger Rogers in the movie and expect me to believe it when Ginger Rogers says, no, this girl can dance circles around me. And I'm like, uh, uh okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. How
1: much is she paying you? <laughs>
0: uh, one last thing. And then I think we should just talk about the like actual musical part to kind of end on a high note before we rate stuff. Um, But one of the things that really drags this movie down in the ratings is that there is this five minute out of nowhere period of blatant racism in the middle of this movie.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Where there is a completely bizarre Gandhi joke, I think, inserted in that never comes back and never makes any sense. And then there is a black maid for like literally one scene just so she can go like, Yes, a ma'am, and then leave.
1: It's uncanny how much it parallels she done him wrong in that respect and in the fact that all the musical numbers are backloaded. But the black maid character exists again only to praise the star lead. She's Dorothy's maid and she's like, oh, Miss Dorothy, you you're amazing or whatever. And I'm like, are we doing this again? Is this like, are we just going to have to watch this for the next five years of movies?
0: The thing that is so bizarre about it is it's like all concentrated into this one five minute stretch. Like these characters never come back. It's not like the Gandhi bit is there in the actual like end of the movie musical sequences. They just like add him in at the end of this number to be like, isn't Gandhi funny looking? (laughs) Ha ha. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. Then there's, you know, a black maid just to have her say some stereotypically black maid stuff. It's not like anything she has to say is plot specific or that we haven't already introduced characters for Dorothy Brock to be talking to.
1: And to praise her and say how great she is, the maid character never comes back. She has literally one line. We never see her have any action. She just shows up, is like on one half of the screen in profile telling Dorothy how great she is.
0: It's like they had got a studio note of like, you've got to spice this up with some racism. Like it feels that phoned in in a weird way as racism of just like, Oh, we had to do some pickup shots, so there was something racist in the movie.
1: Yeah, or or like the black actress that they cast, that they had paid her for the day, so they were just shuffling her from one movie to the next on the back lot. Like, yeah, why don't you run over to 42nd Street and give him a line?
0: Yeah, it's- v- <laughs> like, wh- what what? <laughs> it's very weird, and it comes in the middle of, like, the part of the movie that, like, drags the most. Mm-hmm. Where you're already the most, like, Uh, this isn't a great movie, is it? It's a good movie, but it's not that good. And then suddenly you're like, uh, but maybe it'll pick up again. go nope. We're racist now. Now we're doing racist stuff. And it's very unfortunate.
1: This movie had the potential to be really great. Cut out the racist stuff. Give me a Peggy I can believe in. And this movie's great. Even as irritating as Pat is, and I didn't hate him as much as you did, but he's kind of like, okay, whatever. He's, he's sort of like sullen and-
0: I only hate him because he kind of like makes this big thing about like, he's got to leave Dorothy Brock because he's out of work and she's paying for things. And like, that's just unsustainable. But my heart is with you. It's just, we can't make it work. I'm holding you back, but I love you so much. And then immediately hits on Peggy. Like, is hitting on Peggy so hard. Peggy may not be that into him, but he is hitting on her for sure.
1: Yeah, that's true. He definitely does do that. His thing is not so much that he's holding her back. He does say that. But he has the whole thing about there's a word for a man who has a woman pay for everything. And I was like, oh, this fucking shit? Really? We're gonna like, oh, I don't feel like a man because you're paying for me to do stuff. Welcome to communism, buddy. From each according to their ability to each out of work vaudeville actor according to his need.
0: Yeah. It is a super boring motivation for there to be conflict in their relationship to the point where it seems like he's just kind of saying something to give her the brush off. Because it's not like he's all that devoted to her when he meets literally anybody else.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Anybody else who is like not even that interesting.
0: For that reason, I, I really disliked him as just like essentially just a MacGuffin with a dick for the <laughs> female plot he's fine it's fine like it whatever um
1: oh that is that is a rough rough beat MacGuffin <laughs> with a dick Yeah, so to talk about the end of this, I do want to interject here because there is a plot point that is important going into the musical. So they've been rehearsing for five weeks, and they have their, I guess their dress rehearsal in a studio in New York. The studio looks like, by the way, a full-on Broadway theater with a fly system. (laughs) Which apparently they've just been renting for rehearsals. Yeah. And Julian is like, okay, well, you know, this show is not even ready for us to open tomorrow in Philadelphia. And everyone is like, Philadelphia? But I thought we were going to Atlantic I should, City. I thought we were going to Atlantic City. And Pat has left New York to go to Philadelphia to like try to find theater work. And so Dorothy is like, oh no, but I'm why did it have to be Philadelphia? And like, Pat is such a MacGuffin with a dick that he moves the whole show the day of their, like the day before their opening to a completely different city.
0: And like, yeah, I did kind of logistically go like, how does that, no one drops out of the cast? We're literally going to go to a different state, find somewhere to live, good luck. The day before the show opens,
1: and the movie opens with a shot of an Equity, which is the Actors Union. A shot of an Equity contract, and I'm like, I don't. I mean, I don't know a lot about Equity contracts in the 30s, but I feel like surprise. You're going to Philadelphia tomorrow would be in super violation of a union contract.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Maybe
1: I'm wrong. Maybe equity didn't really, like, have very much say back then. But uh, I kind of feel like union in the 30s, probably stronger than now. So, yeah, they go to Philadelphia and they open the show and then Busby Berkeley takes over.
0: (laughs) And it's amazing. The first number, Shuffle Off to Buffalo... Almost could maybe be done on stage. They have this elaborate train set that, like, opens up and would be super expensive. But, like, you could do it. And, like, there's some weird bits of staging that are, like, very close up of, like, people opening and shutting curtains that probably wouldn't work that well on stage, but, like, is physically viable. I'd never realized Shuffle Off to Buffalo was a song about how cheap going on your honeymoon to Niagara Falls is because you've got to save money because it's the depression. Yep.
1: <laughs> and also that that marriage is stupid.
0: Yeah. That's the opening number and like the one where Ruby Keeler kind of has the most to do, really. Well, I I mean, I guess 42nd Street, but then you have Young and Healthy, which I have no idea how it's supposed to have anything to do with the rest of the show, but it's great.
1: That's the real, like, Busby Berkeley choreography number.
0: Yeah. Also, can we talk for a minute about the, like, outfit that Rihanna could maybe barely get away with that all of the chorus girls in this 1933 movie are wearing for young and healthy? Because it's absurd.
1: It's like a fur stole that, like, wraps around the shoulders and, like, just barely covers their breasts. Yeah. And then... A like fur
0: mini skirt essentially. To
1: call it a skirt though, it feels generous. It's a yes. it's a wide belt.
0: <laughs> yeah. Then gloves. That's like.
1: But I'm I am gonna take issue with the idea that Rihanna could barely pull it off because Rihanna could totally pull off literally anything. <laughs> oh
0: no no I mean I mean I mean in terms of like morally what people wouldn't yell about.
1: Oh yeah yeah yeah.
0: Not in terms of. Rihanna- yes, there is not an outfit on this earth Rihanna can't wear. That's not what I'm arguing. I'm arguing, like, some- like- Some
1: asshole would be upset about it.
0: Yeah. Like, Paris Hilton shows up to Coachella in that, and somebody's like, what's happening to our youth? But, like, (laughs) the- but- yeah. But it's also, like- They're arranged in a circle. Everything is a crane shot. The stage is now pitch black because of all the white in their costumes being the only thing you can see. This would make no sense on stage. It is absurd that this is supposed to be like an actual thing in a theater. Um there's
1: absolutely no way that this choreography would read in a theater. I mean, I guess it would look like, okay, they're tap dancing in a circle, but it is totally staged for the crane shot. It is the classic Busby Berkeley like looks like you're looking at something through a kaleidoscope. Yeah. Amazing number.
0: The most like this would make no sense on stage thing is the ending of the number, which I love, which is a tracking shot through the legs of all the chorus girls who are arranged in a circle. And then at the end of the line of chorus girls, the the male and female leads of the number are, like, laying on the ground and doing that, like, putting your hand under your chin and then putting your elbow down on the ground, like, aw shucks move. Right. Just on the ground. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine the, like, circle of chorus girls with your leads just laying between their legs. From the point of view of the audience?
1: Right, like, why is everybody just standing still? And why are our leads so far upstage and on the ground that we can't see them?
0: Right. And smiling creepily? I can kind of make out that they're smiling. While in between the legs of all of- This is really weird. This is a strange choice.
1: <laughs> but on film it's absolutely gorgeous. Oh yeah. And then we have the the eponymous 42nd Street number which Ruby Keeler sings in a very lackluster voice. Her timbre is a little rough. She's like a quarter step flat for the whole thing. Yeah. She has absolutely no sparkle. And we've just come off of, you know, this incredible Busby Berkeley choreographed number and before that Ginger Rogers and Una Merkel being absolutely hilarious and Shuffle Off to Buffalo and, like, charming beyond words. Beyond, like, what humans should really be capable of. And we've got this.
0: (laughs) Oh, the other thing to mention about Young and Healthy, the big Busby Berkeley number, is the female lead for that, Toby Wing, looks like Marilyn Monroe time-traveled back to 1933. Mm. To the point that I was literally for a second like, no, it's 1933, that can't be Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) But it remarkably looks like Marilyn Monroe. So you've got all of that going for you. And then Ruby Keeler's like, eh, this is fine. And then Dick Powell.
1: Oh, we should point out, by the way, just to show how much the last 20 minutes of this movie are, I I wouldn't say, like, disconnected from the rest of the film, but are definitely their own thing. toby wing is not in the rest of the movie at all oh
0: right (laughs) it's not like you see her in the back of shots in other things she literally just shows up for this one sequence looks amazing and then just that's it that's that's her only appearance in the entire movie
1: fun fact about toby wing She was romantically linked both to FDR Jr. Sorry, FDR Jr. Okay,
0: that makes more sense, because I feel like I would have heard about that.
1: And Maurice Chevalier.
0: Good looking out, Maurice Chevalier. Getting some shit you don't deserve in real life, and not just in the movies this time. (laughs)
1: Not just in Ernst Lubitschville.
0: Apparently, absurdly hot women actually do just throw themselves at men that look like Maurice Chevalier.
1: Or just who are Maurice Chevalier. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's just him. I don't get it, but, you know, apparently ladies got it in the 30s. Anyway, moving on to 42nd Street, the number.
0: The choreography is great and carries it because Ruby Keeler sure as hell doesn't. And,
1: and she only sings the first verse and then we get into, like, it's a huge... And I mean, huge crowd number.
0: The the stage like doubles in size. The the theater stage. The
1: stage is an airplane (laughs) hangar.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's also a great shot that starts in an apartment to have kind of like this domestic abuse dance number. Um, Different time. But then goes out the window of that apartment to the huge airplane hangar street set where there's now, like, 30 more people walking down the street dancing, and it's amazing.
1: She falls out of a window and is caught by a dancer. Right. And then goes straight into dancing, and then is, like, choreographically stabbed, and it's like, oh no, it's tragic. But then everybody just keeps dancing, and it's fine. There's also, like, five cars that are on stage. Right. (laughs) Definitely look for this number on YouTube. Actually, look for the whole last three numbers, because they're amazing.
0: Wikipedia actually has just links to the last three numbers on YouTube. And spoiler alert, my suggestion is going to be you just watch those three numbers and don't watch the whole movie. Though I wish there was a YouTube to Ginger Rogers' monocle business.
1: Oh, that's so good. The shrug and then into the waistcoat pocket and pops another one into her eye was just like... Oh, it was so brilliant.
0: (laughs) But the staging of 42nd Street, the actual number, is so brilliant and so extravagant and so, like, cast of thousands, not really, but like a lot of people, that the ending of the film is kind of unintentionally hilarious, because you see this huge number where Ruby Keeler is like, eh, she's fine. But a woman falls out a window and is caught and just jumps up and starts immediately dancing. And there's cars on stage and these elaborate sets. And everybody is just losing their fucking mind on the floor, like just going all the way. And then everybody walks out and is like, well, at least they got a good lead. That director's a piece of shit, though. He's worthless and didn't do anything good. Um,
1: which is, is mind blowing because she's so milk milquetoast. And and he has directed a number that
0: I... it broke space and time. The <laughs> yes! the musical is so amazing that just the laws of physics can't contain it. <sighs> and <laughs> like and and yet everyone's reaction is like, "Oh, he's so lucky to have found that lead." What? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Ugh. Um. W- w- uh, w- uh. Which I also, I don't understand what the point of that was. Like, and and then Julian, like, throws himself off of a bridge because he lost all of his money in the in the stock market crash. And he's not even a respected artist. Like, what is the, what's the point for this?
0: I mean, I think it's intentionally supposed to be that, like, it is supposed to be that they're wrong. But they're so wrong that it's not like, it's not like when somebody argues over, like, what Fleetwood Mac song is best and they have a bad opinion, but it's still a pretty good song. It's like walking out of the third Transformers movie and going, that's the best Marvel movie that was ever made. (laughs) Like it just doesn't, it's like not a, that's not a thing. Um, that's, that's factually not what that thing was. Um...
1: Oh, my God. Imagine saying it was the best Transformers movie, even. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so to scoring this movie, I guess we should we should get there.
0: Yeah. I mean, like we say, the last 20 minutes, I think that's the longest stretch of like perfect movie that we've watched is 20 minutes. Yes. That should be reflected in the score. But also, and and like the rest of the movie isn't like garbage. It's not like it's like in old Arizona for the first hour and then suddenly is great. It's mediocre.
1: It's not even five star final for the first hour and then. Yeah,
0: it's like, it's fine. I'd give the rest of this movie like a five and probably I'd bump it down to a four because of the weird five minute racism interlude. But then that last 20 minutes is really, really solid. So I want to get like seven. Yeah, seven.
1: I'm going to say a seven. Yeah. I'm going to agree with you that minus the racism scene, it's a five. The racism scene bumps it down to a four because it's not that the whole movie is racist. We're like, we're not dealing with that again. Adding the 10 on top of it and dividing by two, that that gives us- Gives us a 7. Yeah. I wanted this movie going in, though, to be the one that should have won Best Picture. I really, really thought it was going to be that. What we've watched so far in this year, it's I would say it's still the best movie we've watched for 1932-1933. But I have faith that of the four other movies we have yet to watch in this year, something is going to be better than this. More solid across the board.
0: I mean, yeah, we have the actual winner cavalcade. Which is
1: next week. Yeah.
0: We've got a Frank Capra movie. Oh,
1: which one's Frank Capra?
0: Lady for a Day. Oh,
1: okay. And
0: then we have a Little Women adaptation. And then we also have Private Life of Henry VIII, which I don't have a like way to go like that'll probably be amazing, but i mean it could be
1: oh i feel like the fact that they felt it necessary to refer to it as the private life of henry the eighth automatically means this movie is not going to be great
0: the unauthorized biography of henry the eighth uh,
1: yeah it's like the Tudors for 1933
0: yes but, yeah, this could still win best picture, but it isn't the like slam dunk oh, this should have been best picture that I wanted it to be going in
1: again, like we haven't watched the rest of the movies. this may be the this may be the best movie of the year, but I feel like there's definitely there's definitely some room here. Nobody is gonna have to like really pull ahead in a way that I wouldn't expect. I feel like we've actually watched movies that overall were better than this, you know. I'm actually going to say Smiling Through, I think, was better than this.
0: I'm not going to... I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, Smiling Through had its moments, but it also had... It
1: was bizarre. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I will say, like, All Quiet on the Western Front is better than this movie. Oh, yeah. It is a better movie that does harder things and succeeds at them more often than 42nd Street does. But, like, this is kind of the first time when we watched a musical, I was like, yeah, we're fucking watching a musical. It's finally happening. Um, instead of like five reprises of the same song, <laughs> or let's just have a romantic comedy where occasionally there's like a small musical interlude. Right. There's kind of a roller coaster of the, your reaction to this movie because at first you're like, all right, 42nd Street, we're doing it. And then you're slowly kind of ground down. I remember specifically when they just kind of have the Lloyd Bacon directed choreography toward the beginning of the movie going like, oh, I guess this is like watching like American graffiti before Star Wars, where you can like, oh, there are these moments of the camera movement of Busby Berkeley, but he's not Busby Berkeley yet. And then we'll get there and it'll be amazing three movies from now. But like, he's still figuring out how to, nope.
1: No, he's, he's got it. (laughs)
0: He has got
1: it. And one wonders if the rest of the movie would have been better if he had directed the whole thing.
0: And I guess we'll find out before we're done with this project.
1: So next week, we are watching Cavalcade, which is the actual winner of 1932-1933, and has a really beautiful poster.
0: Yep. And it looks remarkably similar to the poster for Cimarron, except there's just not a man ripping his shirt open in the center of the poster
1: it is a mother holding her two children while it looks like the four horsemen of the apocalypse are bearing down on her yeah so we'll see how that turns out but, uh, until next week
0: <laughs> that was a movie that was
1: it, that was two movies
0: it was two movies and one of them was fantastic
1: <laughs> watch the second one don't bother with the first.
0: Yeah, not really. Bye, everybody!
1: Bye. <laughs>